This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, the Black is Back Coalition will make freedom for all political prisoners the top item at its upcoming national conference. And what is the meaning of Pan-Africanism today in a post-colonial world? But first, The entire planet remains in the grips of the COVID-19 contagion. The United States has fared worse than any other developed country, economically and in terms of loss of life. Everyone talks about how bad things are in the age of COVID, but it's even more crucial to ask, what kind of crisis is this? We pose that question to Anthony Montero, the Philadelphia-based Du Boisian scholar. One of the most important questions that those of us concerned about revolutionary change must answer is what type of crisis is this? How is it affecting the masses? And what are the possibilities for political and ideological ways out of it? Or put it another way, the political and ideological consolidation and mobilization of the people to bring about change. I would say that this crisis is a singular event in the history of world capitalism. That does not mean it is yet the most severe, of course, you know, the period World War I, the Great Depression and World War II were enormously destructive crises for capitalism, which in their wake unleashed new forces of revolution and liberation, the anti-colonial struggle, the Chinese revolution, the consolidation of the revolutionary forces in Korea and Vietnam and other parts of Asia. But I still think this is singular. And the reason I think it is, is because It might be the crisis that so disables the world capitalist system that while it might go on or continue to show some life for several decades, it will never be the same. There is no capitalist nation which can save capitalism the way that the United States did after World War II. People talk about an existential crisis. I would agree with that language, but this is something like a crisis unto death. Now, in saying all of that, there are multiple levels of conflict going on. The conflict within the dominant sections of the ruling class could lead at some point to the destruction of all sides, of both sides in this. 
of course, the constant pressure to force the masses to accept austerity and poverty and immiseration and ultimate ruin will inevitably bring about a pushback. I say this, all of this to say only that any strategic and tactical line to move forward must look at the crisis in its totality and must reject all simplistic illusions about, for example, the election of Biden will create space for the movements to more effectively mobilize the people, or that the elimination of Trump as president of the United States will be a blow against fascism and white supremacy, or that momentary movements, let us say, or protest will be the answers to the deepening immiseration of society and in particular of the working masses. So that's the way I initially would frame the problematic that we're confronting. Well, let's talk about the possibilities, if there are any, with the election of Biden. His Democratic mm. Party shows no signs whatsoever of backing away from the policy of austerity, that is, mm -hmm. the enforced race to the bottom of people from the working classes. He has already said that he would veto Medicare for all, that is, mm -hmm. reinforcing austerity. And in terms of the police state that enforces the order under austerity, he's not in favor of defunding the police or any fundamental change. No, not at all. And you know, like Baldwin said, how can I believe what you say when I've seen what you've done? Biden has a long record of uh, standing to the right of the American public. He has supported war. He supported austerity. He supported mass incarceration. And suddenly we are to believe that we're dealing with a new Biden. No, we're not. And we're not dealing with a new Democratic Party. In fact, apropos our discussion last evening, and you said something very interesting, I'd like to, re, you know, just to repeat it. You said, were it not for war, you felt that the election of Biden could create possibilities, at least for black folk, to step to the leaders of the Democratic Party and attempt to make them make good on the promises that they're now making. And the thing that's so important for me, but not for war, which suggests that the Democratic Party has become the party of war. And if it is the party of war, it is the party of austerity. And if it is the party of war and austerity, it is the party of white supremacy. There is no avoiding this fact. So any illusion that we're getting a new Democratic Party or that the elections to Congress and other elected offices by people who appear to be left represents a social democratization of the Democratic Party. I think that is a profound illusion. 
and all forces that think they can take mass movements to the Democratic Party and thus change the Democratic Party are harboring profound illusions and spreading illusions among the masses. When you take mass movements and allow the Democratic Party to appropriate them and they become a part of the Democratic Party and a part of the funding networks of the Democratic Party and so on and so forth, it's not the movements that change the Democratic Party, it is the ruling class through the Democratic Party that changes those movements. And therefore, it is not radical, it is not revolutionary to speak, as so many of these people do, that somehow the Democratic Party is going to be the political vehicle to bring the movements to the position of governmental power and all of that type of thing. It is the complete opposite. And that is what we have to face. And we face, therefore, a moment of truth in the movement. Either we stand up and be truthful about the depth and nature of the crisis and strategic and tactical questions and programmatic questions that must be addressed if we are to move forward. Either we face up to that or we are condemning the people, the masses, to a prolonged period of what could be a political, social, cultural, ideological dark ages. Yes, and as a point of clarification, what I meant in terms of the possibility of a victory by Biden was that it was an opportunity for the Democrats to once again prove that they are not the party of change with all of these expectations that have built up among black folks as the Democrats run basically against Trump, basically against racism, supposedly, basically on the side of Black Lives Matter with Democratic mayors painting those initials in the streets of their cities. But then if Biden wins, all of those fake promises, all of those fake tickets will have to be cashed. Yeah. Yeah, I I understand what you're saying. And I, I go back to your proviso, but for war. And I think that is noteworthy because what you were saying, and I agree completely and have said this for several years now, if not many years, that the Democratic Party has become the party of war, has become the party of the security state, has become the party of uh, neoliberalism, and has become the party of austerity. Completely. Now, when I say become, I mean, didn't just start with Obama, although he was a big part of that. It goes back to Clinton, maybe even to Carter in the 1970s, but certainly Clinton and the Democratic Leadership Conference, DLC, which said, in effect, we will move the party closer to the white electorate and away from black folk and labor And the two signature pieces of legislation in 1994, forwarded by the uh, Clinton administration, was the Crime Bill of 1994 and the Welfare Bill, which for the first time since the Great Depression and the New Deal took away a federal mandate from a protected population, and that was the poor and people receiving welfare 
And Clinton's bill said that to get your welfare check now, you had to work at sub-minimum wages. And then the repeal of Glass-Steagall, which set loose the banks to create crisis after crisis through their manipulation of capital. And actually, austerity combines both of these aspects. That is the deepening precarity of the poor, which is why you get rid of welfare, and the greater and greater power of the rich to structure the economy to their benefit and no one else's. And that's where we're at. And therefore, I think we're going to have to try or to stimulate a real debate about all of these left thinkers and activists rushing to support and endorse Biden for president. I think there are consequences to that type of politics, which go far beyond temporary tactical maneuvering. I think it has profound impact upon the standing, the legitimacy of the left and left thinkers for years to come, because the irony is that no matter what the, quote, left does, the masses will decide what they're going to do in November based upon their economic and class interests for the most part. And and when I say make up their minds about what they're going to do, a big question for large numbers of people, including high percentages of black folk, is whether they will vote at all. In other words, the crisis of legitimacy has gone so far that some polls suggest that between 16 and 25 percent of black people at this moment have decided they will not vote in the 2020 presidential race. You know, when we talk about crises and these overlapping and multiple crises of the system, we don't emphasize, we don't talk about the fact that there will be no real existential political crisis for the people who rule this country unless there is a countervailing force with a program to actually end their rule, to to dispossess them, to dethrone them. And without that, there's no crisis for them. They weather the crisis and remain in charge. Yeah. And that's very interesting because, you know, it's a triangle, a three-sided situation. One, there is the struggle within the ruling class, which, and I'm not predicting, but it is possible that that struggle could lead to the destruction of both sides, at least the weakening of both sides in terms of their grip and hold upon power. The other thing is the masses themselves, who, for different reasons, oppose the ruling class generally on specific issues, be it war, be it austerity, be it the growing economic and wealth inequality in the country, be it the handling of health care and other social questions like education in the cities, problems, questions of gentrification and so on. So you have three sides here, the two sides in the ruling class and then the masses themselves. Now, that is a complicated 
set of conditions and struggles, but for us, those who claim to be for freedom, those who claim to be for radical change, we have to come forward with a way of talking about, thinking about, and educating the masses in the context of this three-sided struggle. I am convinced, and this is what in a lot of ways makes this a singular crisis, certainly singular in the history of the United States, that the ruling class could so savage itself as to give a strategic advantage to a united people who are fighting for a democratic program, a left democratic program, a radical democratic program, which creates conditions for the socialist reconstruction of the American economy and society. The two wings of the ruling class have been savaging each other and damaging the legitimacy of the system as a whole. But until there is an actual alternative political force, much of the folks, and we are talking about almost all black folks, will instead rally to one side or the other of the duopoly, black folks to the Democrats. Yeah, or abstain. And that's one of the things that I'm seeing in a lot of this polling data, that people, black people and white people, are withdrawing from the bourgeois political game, the game of the duopoly. And hence, they're not saying they're giving up on life, they're not giving up on change, they're waiting for the right program that they can identify with, that they can mobilize around, and then let's see what where it goes from there. But it's a very fluid situation, and in some ways bordering on chaos, which then makes the country very difficult to govern, even with a powerful state like the one we have here. And you were speaking of war and the Democrats' status as the war party, and Joe Biden runs to the right of Trump on issues no of question. war and peace. There is no question. There is no question. And that's the irony. Trump is called the neo-fascist in the White House. But when it comes to war and peace, I don't think there's any reason to believe that we're going to see a new Biden. Frankly, we did not see in the most progressive Democratic candidate, Bernie Sanders, a real peace program. I mean, you know, here is the progressive, the so-called socialist, referring to the brother socialist, Hugo Chavez as a dead communist dictator. That doesn't give you too much hope in that kind of leftism. Or you take the Ocasio-Cortez's and her group. When it comes to war and peace, they are not that different than the Clintons and the Pelosi's and the leadership of the Democratic Party, of the ruling class, that is. As you are quick to remind folks, we used to call those people social imperialists. Absolutely. People, people who put social or socialism in their names, but behaved as imperialists towards the world. Yeah. And look, I think people like ourselves, like you and myself in the Black Agenda Report, we support what is supportable from our point of view, from our ideological and political standpoint, what can be supported 
in candidates of the ruling class. For example, when Trump, one of the first things he did as president was to withdraw the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We supported it. And why wouldn't we? If he resists the push to bring NATO through the Ukraine up to the borders of Russia, we support that. Why not? If he is for the termination or the pause in military exercises, nuclear exercises around the Korean Peninsula, we support that. His sanctions against Iran, his trade war against China, his sanctions and war, economic war against Venezuela, we oppose all of that. And so it is. But we cannot be doctrinaire or dogmatic when it comes to this game of real politics. At the same time, defining what the interests of Black folk and working people in general is in this context and pushing our program. The problem is that most leftists, as they call themselves, are either university professors or connected in one another way to one of the nonprofit organizations or non-governmental organizations, which are financed by uh, ruling class networks. But we have to do something different. We cannot, and I would say, I, I guess I'm going out on a limb now. I don't think the left should consider voting for Trump or Biden, and certainly not Biden. And we must tell the people the truth. We must end the lie that the whole anti-Trump coalition is based upon, and that is that he is a fascist and the Democratic Party is the party of peace and justice. Anybody that would even, by not speaking up for with such a view, is doing tremendous damage to the movement of the people. My position has been that Trump represents an old fascism in the United States that, in fact, was a model for the fashions that came after it in Europe, but that the corporate forces that are behind the Democrats, as well as the older Republican Party, have evolved another kind of fascism, more highly technocratic, more concerned with actually strengthening the structures of the rule of capital, and even more dangerous than the old-fashioned fascism that Trump represents. And we oppose both fascisms. Well, let me tell you this. I would suggest that we might need to not even reference fascism in explaining the nature of state power and rule in the United States at this time. I think that what Hitler and Mussolini constructed was something almost like uh, the kindergarten compared to the sophistication of the rule of this ruling class. It is authoritarian with a fig leaf of democracy. You can vote every four years, but the people you have to vote for are pretty much the same. I think we're dealing with something far more lethal, far more dangerous, and far more powerful than anything that the fascists of the 1920s and 30s and going forward could have imagined. And that is irrespective of either party. The fact is that 
what is called the deep state or the real state or the security state is something the likes of which we and no other nation has ever seen, which makes the struggle by the people for power far more difficult, far more complicated, because they not only control the instruments of security, etc., but they control the media. The media is far more powerful in today's America than in fascist Italy or fascist Germany. I think we're dealing with something far more lethal. References to the past barely get at the nature of what we have. That was Dr. Anthony Montero speaking from Philadelphia. The Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations holds its national conference on August 15th and 16th. Coalition Chairman Omali Yeshitela says the emphasis will be on the plight of political prisoners. Indeed, it's extremely important to us, especially because we have sitting with us on the coalition, the Black is Black Coalition for Social Justice, Peace and Reparations. Part of our steering committee is deeply and profoundly connected to the whole issue of political prisoners. And among militants in the prison movement, the question of Black August has become extremely important, extremely significant, and it's tied a lot to the murder of George Jackson, who was an imprisoned revolutionary and the field marshal of the Black Panther Party, who was killed in San Quentin on August 21st. And then, of course, his 17-year-old brother, Jonathan, was killed escaping from a Marin County courthouse siege on August of the year earlier. And then Marcus Garvey, uh, born on August 17th, and most of the conventions, the Negro Convention of the World, that uh, brought thousands of people to New York to address the question of our freedom to organize, et cetera, happened in August as well. So August has a lot of historical significance to us. And I think we have to really appreciate the fact that the militants associated with the prison movement or the struggle against the prisons, and particularly political prisoners, have characterized this as Black August to give it you know, even greater significance for our people. People have been in the streets in huge numbers calling for prison abolition. And, of course, the Black is Back Coalition supports that. But abolition can take place in various ways over a period of time. But the coalition's calling for the freedom of all political prisoners now. And it is absolutely true. I mean, especially you look at what's happening now the ferocity, the intensity of the, the protest mobilizations that have begun subsequent to the police murder of uh, George Floyd on May 25th, which happened to be African Liberation Day, that these uprisings have even forced the U.S. government or certain sectors of it, and certainly the corporate media, this as how it's characterized, this colonial media that is, functions all the time, or most of the time, as an apologist for every crime that is committed against Africans and other peoples around the world, they have been forced to acknowledge the existence of these wrongdoings that the police uh, have done and all the crimes that's committed against African people or would-be crimes. They're not crimes in many instances because they were legal in the sense that the colonial powers were able to legalize every oppression and every exploitation of our people. But now, because uh, we've had mobilizations, uh, millions and millions of people have been in the streets in the United States and every one of the 50 states in this country, because peoples around the world 
uh, have expressed solidarity with this growing uh, movement, or certainly with this really uh, profound uh, manifestation of uh, struggle and resistance by African people, uh, the bourgeois media, the colonial media itself has had to step in and has had to acknowledge that something is wrong. And it has even used empirical data to talk about the rate of imprisonment, the rate of police murders, the absence of health care, the unemployment, the, just the horrors that have constantly been visited upon African people, especially this question about police murder, police intervention, that much of the, uh, the ruling class itself, or certainly its representatives in the Congress, et cetera, have had to acknowledge with all of this then it's absolutely uh, necessary, perfect time uh, to push out into broad public view uh, this issue of political prisoners, that, that we have these people that have been rotting in U.S. prisons, tortured and what have you, sometimes for 50 years or so. So we have a responsibility to push this question to the surface in the best possible way, and that's what the coalition is moving to do right now. Yes, the urgency of now is especially poignant for black political prisoners from the 60s and 70s, all of whom are elderly now, some in their 80s. Actually, after they've held these... Uh, uh, you uh, dropped out. Just, it, 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 the Skype dropped out on, on you. Let's start that again. Okay. Some in their, yeah, eight, think- some in their 80s. And that is absolutely true. I mean, we have people like Sundiata Okole, who is a genuine champion, just one of the most incredible human beings that you want to see. And you've seen uh, other people who the government would release only to have them dying days and perhaps weeks later, such as what's happened recently, one of the Move family forces that was released after being falsely imprisoned. And I use the term falsely imprisoned really guardedly because I don't think that we have to be in a position to talk about or defend uh, the rights of people to resist, our people to resist. And so I don't want to be appear to be on that side of the question. But the fact is that the government has jailed African people who have actually been guilty of resisting, if guilt can be given to those acts, and then people who weren't uh, even actually guilty of the things that this government has arrested, put them up, locked them up, and what have you. And as you mentioned, some in their 80s, and Sundiata Akoli is 83, and he was, of course, arrested subsequent to Asada Shakur, the attempted murder of Asada Shakur in the New Jersey Turnpike. And he was one of the forces who was able to fight the police and put Asada in the car after she had been shot with her hands raised and to take her to a place where he was able to put her out of the car where she was found and people gave her assistance, but Sundiata who was a brilliant mathematician who had even briefly worked for NASA, was one of those human beings who saw the future of our people, the destiny of our people, the struggles of our people to be more important than his own personal security and his own personal well-being. And that's what we're looking at when we look at these human beings who actually went up against the greatest power on earth to fight for our freedom. You can't find better human beings than that, and we have to get them out of there And as you said, some of them are in the 80s, like Sundiata. Yes, and because of the prominence and longevity of those political prisoners, some people think in terms of political prisoners only as being from that era. But every movement produces its own political prisoners. And political prisoners were produced in the movement of 2014 and 2015, and surely there are political prisoners being produced right now. 
And that's absolutely true. I mean, one of the reasons we can talk about Sundiata and forces from the Black Liberation Army and people uh, from that era, from that period, is because there was a genuine revolutionary movement afoot at that time, even though the U.S. government succeeded in crushing it and the work to support those political prisoners was also crushed. But people at least knew of them. They knew Sundiata Kola. They knew some of these other folks. But many people now are falling and people don't know them. And we have a responsibility to raise them up. And if you look at the, the question of Ferguson, St. Louis, where the FBI went into Ferguson, St. Louis, they sent more than 100 FBI agents into Ferguson, St. Louis after the police murdered Mike Brown. And after you saw a situation where the white people brought up all the guns, all the guns in St. Louis, you couldn't find the gun because whites had bought them up. And you had a situation where the white cops were running around with bracelets, saluting the cop who had Darren Wilson, who had murdered uh, Mike Brown. But the FBI didn't come in to deal with the fact that the white people were hoarding guns, that the cops were celebrating the murder of Mike Brown. They came in to set up and frame up African political prisoners, Africans, three men who the police actually did a sting on to invite them to commit a crime. And after they suggested that the people accepted their invitation, these were members of, I think, the New Black Panther Party. We haven't even heard from those folks since then. They're the people who were in Miami who the feds went in and set them up. And this was pre-even August 2014. They set them up and claimed that they wanted to work with Osama bin Laden and bought them boots and bought them military equipment and then took them and told them to take this picture, take that picture. And when they did it, then the government arrested them. And so they're political prisoners. And then there's a host of political prisoners that's not even being mentioned. And those are women. And I'm not talking about people like Asada. I'm talking about people who were guilty of defending themselves. And because they defended themselves, they were criminalized. And if you remember the woman who fired a weapon uh, in the air, and this was during this whole period of the glorification of Stand Your Ground, and this woman simply fired a weapon in the air at someone who was in the process of assaulting her, and she went to prison. So there are all kinds of people who've been locked up even subsequent to the 60s. And sometimes in the midst of protests and sometimes because of glaring political activity, but also times of people who don't even get characterized as political prisoners, don't even get recognized as such, uh, like some of the women that I've just referenced. And of course, this mass black incarceration process and the counterinsurgency process of cracking down on political dissidents begins with the cops in the street. The thrust of this movement has been about controlling these cops, but the Black is Back Coalition has put forward proposals for Black community control of the police. We've called for Black community control of the police because we've recognized for some time that this is a critical issue that affects us. And I think that while many people are able to see and recognize the significance of a cop shooting somebody down, many people often don't remember that the cop is the one who is responsible for this burgeoning prisons, that the numbers of people, our people who are locked in these prisons, they go there as a consequence of police, the interaction with the police, which is the primary government agency that we have a relationship with. It's not our city council persons, it's not the governor or the senators or congressperson, it's the cop. The police is the primary instrument of government that black people, African people in this country have a relationship with, and they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere, and they're even in our streets as we walk down the street like Mike Brown. 
was doing in Ferguson, St. Louis uh, on August 9, 2014 to intervene, interfere, interfere. They're the ones who stick us in the prisons and shoot us down in the streets when they're not sticking us in the prisons. A demand that's gotten plenty of corporate media coverage is for defunding the police. But that kind of proposal leaves lots of room for bargaining and little for the spirit of abolition. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think it's important that the demand for defunding the police has surfaced. And I think that it was an honest demand at some juncture, like many of the demands that we see, but offers the state, the government, a, a relatively easy way out, even a diversionary thing. Because when they talk about defunding the police, first of all, they don't even recognize the crimes that the police are committing against us, that it is an occupying military force. And so we think that it's more than just saying no to the police. That's what we say, black communities control of the police. We negate that. And we have to have the power in our own hands to provide our own security. And then you get around all of the phony excuses that's used by the state, but we didn't know what they were doing. They don't understand our culture, sensitivity training, things like that. Well, we have a close proximity to our own culture, and we are relatively sensitive to our own aspirations and the fact that we have a right to live and to prosper as well. So Black community control of the police is not simply defunding, as they characterize it, and they are the ones who control whatever the hell that means. We say we want to negate the presence. We want black community control of the police. We want our people and our community to have access. And that's not the same even as saying put a black person in the seat of the white people agency that controls us now. We want to have the ability to control our own security. And we may call them police or not. Whatever they call is not the biggest issue, but the thing is that we need to negate their presence. That's the state. That's the colonial state. That's the military occupying force. And so if they have some other welfare-like agency that carries out more or less the same functions of repression, of maintaining and fighting to control the status quo, that's unacceptable altogether. Like all other gatherings these COVID days, the National Conference of the Coalition will take place on Zoom. How can the rest of the world take part in it with you? We're actually uh, really excited about uh, mass participation. The coalition has had two or three really successful Zoom conferences subsequent to the colonial virus pandemic. And we're calling on people to go to blackisbackcoalition.org blackisbackcoalition.org. And you can find all the information about connecting with this effort that we're involved in. You can find the call to the coalition. And if it's not up yet, within a matter of a day or two, we'll be able to see the actual program. So go to blackisbackcoalition.org, connect with it, and it's going to be an extraordinary event and everybody should be there. But I just really think that as a people, when we've had such heroic and courageous men and women who stood in front of all the attacks, who stepped forward to halt the assaults that were being made on us to try and win our freedom. And I'm now speaking more specifically about those brothers and sisters and comrades from the 1960s who've been rotting in these prison cells and who endured all kinds of torture, isolation, and humiliation that we have a real responsibility to, to do everything possible. And the other thing that we have to do is America has been able to get away with this in part because the Americans succeeded in crushing our movement so that this whole notion of political prisoners is something that the United States does not acknowledge. And so everybody is treated as a criminal. 
And the fact is that we have these men and women who have fought for us, and we need to really expose America to the world as this uh, entity that has not only a gulag, if you will, the thing they used to like to charge the Russians with, with having with the numbers of people in prison, but also the fact that they're political prisoners who are languishing and who are treated in the most horrible and offensive ways. So we're hoping that we can help to change that and help people to demand immediate release of all the political prisoners, and especially those, but not only those, who were arrested in the 1960s. That was Omali Yeshitela of the Black is Back Coalition. Many tens of millions of people of African descent live outside the continent. But what does that mean in political terms? We spoke with Jane O. Ifekwenegwe, a senior scholar at the Center for Genomics, Race, Identity, and Difference at Duke University. She says the Africa connection means different things to different people. Particular desire for some kind of connection to homeland. And this whole notion of a global African diaspora for those who cannot, even with the advent of DNA technology now, trace their lineages directly back to specific ancestors on the continent, what that uprooting does in terms of having an imagined sense of a connection to Mother Africa or to the motherland, as opposed to one that is imagining a place that you once knew. And so I was just simply trying to kind of tease out what some of the challenges of different people of African descent finding themselves together in diaspora with different relationships to the continent. And so another way of thinking about it is this notion of African immigrants coming to the U.S., and maintaining these real transnational ties through remittances or WhatsApp or other ways in which people stay connected to their friends and family back in Nigeria or Ghana or Kenya or Tanzania. The continent is a place of remembering. We once lived there. We have these familial ties there. Another kind of simplistic way of thinking about it is we have a country or countries. You know, I'm Nigerian. I'm, I'm Ghanaian. I'm Tanzanian, and I find myself for different reasons living and working in Canada or the U.S. or the U.K. or Germany, as opposed to I have this remembering, um, this, this ancestral memory of my ancestors coming from Senegal or Ghana or Nigeria, but they were uprooted and forcibly brought to the United States or to Brazil or to Jamaica, and I am now trying to reconnect in whatever way that I can with that strong force and that strong tie that I feel to the continent. You've described the global African diaspora, that far-reaching space geographically, as a racialized space of belonging. What is a racialized space of belonging? That's a very interesting question, and I think we are in that moment now of seeing the solidarity that is forged from racialized spaces of belonging in the global reach now of the Black Lives Matter movement, that a racialized space of belonging is this notion of leaving 
once again, this was where this issue of migration and different moments of migration become significant because it's taking, for example, once again, I'm using migration as kind of a, an explanatory frame because what happens is that people become racialized in a particular way when they are in these metropolitan centers, when they are suddenly encountering difference. You know, they are racialized as black, which is to say that there is a particular relationship that one has to race that is, in, to a certain extent, imposed. And I talked about that in a very personal way in the piece that you read, because my own family and my siblings encountered this when we moved from the UK to the US when I was a teenager. I rapidly had to understand how race worked in the United States that I had, before I came to the U.S., had a very complex understanding of my origins that were shaped by a father who was Eastern Nigerian Igbo and a mother who was Irish, English, and Guyanese. And so I had an understanding of an identity that was forged and, and shaped by those multiple nationalities and ethnicities. And I understood the richness and the fullness of that. And I think in a, in a British context, what was as significant as race was class. And then I came to the U.S. and I very quickly had to understand that the way that one drop rule blackness works in America, the most significant thing about me was that I was racialized as black. And I had to understand what that meant. And significantly what it meant is that for other people outside of the black community in all its diversity and multiplicity, they weren't interested at all in whether I was Nigerian or African-American or from the Caribbean. A collapsing of the complexity and the, the heterogeneity and, and the diversity of people of African descent and this monolithic identity of blackness, which we have been able to mobilize for political purposes. And I think its power comes from, so we've been able to take something that has been imposed on us and claim it for our own and we can kind of gain strength. But then what it also does is it kind of dilutes, not necessarily dilutes, it conceals, it conceals the complexities of the lived experiences of being black. And let's take the United States. You must have felt as a young person just arrived here that you were being stripped of a lot of your identity. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say stripped because one of the things that we all learn to do in different ways, and that's whether we were born here or not, if we're having to navigate different social spaces, we learn really quickly how to code switch. And I would say that that definitely helped ha uh, worked for me and my siblings because we were, and I talk about this as well in that piece, is that what I call the delicate dance of double consciousness. You know, I, I kind of appropriate Du Bois' notion of double consciousness to talk about this way in which on the schoolyards and in the classrooms, we learned how to pass as straightforward black American. We learned the lingo, we learned the expressions, and we learned not to stand out. But at home, having immigrant parents and having immigrant parents who wanted to preserve aspects of their cultures and wanted us to retain those aspects, there were certain things that we were supposed to hold on to. So I talked about in that piece 
the joke of how we would police each other's accents and language. And so if we caught anyone trying to, in inverted commas, talk American at home, you know, we would tell on them because expectation is that back then, my father in particular wanted us to hold on to an English accent. You know, so this idea that our our vowels and consonants would morph to, to more approximate what my accent sounds like now, which is American, was abhorrent to him because he was of that colonial generation that really valued what was called the Queen's English and wanted us to kind of hold on to that. You're from Britain, the center of the British Commonwealth and home to black people from all over the world. Here in the United States, until the rather recent change in immigration laws, most black folks didn't meet anybody from the diaspora. And we hear black folks in the United States often say that their experience is totally different from African experiences because Africans come from countries that are overwhelmingly black and where black people are at least nominally in charge, whereas here in the United States, blacks are a distinct and often despised minority. Yes, yes. I want to trouble that a little bit. I would agree with you in terms of the significance of 1965 and that Immigration Act in terms of immigration access to more peoples who were not white, and that included African immigrants. But I also want to remind people of the fact that Namde Azikwe studied at Lincoln University, who went on to lead the independence movement in Nigeria. And he, to a certain extent, was politicized by his time in the United States and seeing the injustices, the racial injustices under Jim Crow that his American brothers and sisters were subjected to. You also have the Pan-African Congress in 1945 that was kind of a bringing together of those fighting for black liberation and civil rights in the United States and the colonial independence movements on the continent. But I would agree with you, yes, that prior to the massive influx after 1965 of African immigrants, most people had not, unless they were in academic settings where they came across students, you know, who came from these other parts, that most people weren't exposed to that. And yes, there is a significant difference in terms of coming from countries where you see people in positions of power and running your governments who look like you. And what you're then seeing is a spectrum economically of people who are incredibly entitled who look like you and those who are not. You know, so class becomes significant on the continent. But the bounds are limitless because I see people who look like me in positions of power and authority. So yes, that does make a difference to see people in charge who look like you and what that can do to your sense of what's possible. Brazil has the largest black population outside of Africa, and it appears to be getting larger. That is, more people are self-selecting for the census that they are black because of a growing black consciousness movement, but also because of affirmative action. Yes, Brazil is a fascinating place to observe in terms of that growing Negro Movimento, the growing consciousness of blackness, both for political reasons, but also for recognition of the shifting climate wherein more opportunities are becoming available for black Brazilians. And that emerged out of a nation that tried to kind of 
imagine itself from its inception as this kind of idyllic model of racial harmony. And that was what was propagated when the reality was a very different one. And that classic book by Gilberto Freire that tried to kind of put that forward, this this cosmic mythology of a racial harmony comprised of white Blacks and indigenous, when the reality was, as you know, if you look at somewhere like Brazil, there's a direct correlation between your position in that racial hierarchy and your color, your race. The race color systems, you know, work very much in alignment with opportunity and access. And so the blacker you are, the poorer you are. You're a scholar and you've been looking at race through the prism and with the tools of academia. But what conclusions have you come to regarding the future of Pan-Africanism as an ideology? Mm, I'm so glad that you asked that because I have been thinking a lot about that. I mean, I have always had that kind of as my perspective because as I began the piece, I think that I with my multiple positionings and my multiple nationalities, my familial connections both to the diaspora and the continent, I had been searching for a kind of philosophy to govern and guide me and my, not just my scholarship, but my politics. And I think that in the same way that Pan-Africanism helped do that, I think a Pan-African diasporic consciousness does that as well. And I think that if we look at the parallel civil rights movements, at colonial independence and civil rights, that was Pan-Africanism in action. And that's why I mentioned the 1945 Pan-African Congress, which was comprised of these forces, these two parallel forces in terms of those who were at that Congress in Manchester, who were both representatives from the Caribbean and the United States and from the continent. And I think, as I said, about how the encounters and exchanges that Africans had in the diaspora facilitated, enabled their political activism when they went back home. And I've already mentioned Namde Ezekwe, but another example that I, I love to cite is Fela Kuti, the incredible musician and activist and creator of Afrobeat, who had, was classically trained in the UK and then actually spent some time in LA. And it was actually his relationship with a sister, an African-American woman, who, as part of their courtship, gave him the autobiography of Malcolm X to read. And prior to that, his songs had never been politicized. And then he became politicized after reading that. And he went back to Nigeria and his whole, the kinds of songs he sang and his activism, everything shifted from that. You know, so these relationships have always been there. There have always been these connections between the diaspora and the continent. And I think we sometimes forget them. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation. 